Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 22. Warning, may contain Taylor Swift references. Remember that this is a podcast which relies on listener support. If you want to help out, one of the best and easiest ways of doing so is to leave a listener review on iTunes. It doesn't cost you a penny, takes about 30 seconds, and spreads the word to other people who may not otherwise hear about the show. But enough about iTunes. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling ready for some American history. Last time out, we took a fair few digressions and only managed to move forward 15 days, so let's just get into it. The January of 1621 was a cold and wet month, and working was difficult. There was an issue where two men had gotten lost, and the rest of the pilgrims thought they had been captured, so they returned to the ship for safety. The next morning, on the 14th, they found that the thatch roof on the common house caught fire and was severely damaged, although the walls and the structure of the house were saved. The next day must have been depressing. The sky turned black like a perfect storm, rain came pouring down, and they stood there in their one roofless house. I wonder whether they got drunk on jealousy, thinking about their families back in Leyden. There must have been some points when they wished they hadn't bothered with this adventure. That's not how it comes across in the material, though. If they ever got depressed, they found their old selves again, the plucky hard workers, and got back to work. They had some mild days in the next week, and they were able to repair most of the damage. Enough that on the 21st, they were able to have an uninterrupted church service for the first time. January turned into February, and the little group began work on construction of the individual houses. This was the bad time we talked about back in episode 20, as the deaths mounted up. The pilgrims were lucky to have with them a surgeon named Fuller, who seems to have been unusually competent for the time, but they lacked medicine, and about four a week died. The other development was that they kept seeing natives, but aside from the initial engagement, they weren't able to make contact, because, well, the Indians knew places they could hide. This freaked out the pilgrims, and thoughts began to turn towards their own defences, It's quite surprising that it took them this long when you think about it. For the Virginian settlers setting up Jamestown, defence was one of their first priorities. You'll recall the almost immediate construction of the triangular-shaped fortification with a cannon at each corner. The pilgrims moved their cannon onto land on February 21st, almost four months after they arrived in the New World. February was probably the hardest month for the pilgrims. The sickness which was plaguing them was at its worst. At one point, only seven of the colonists were able-bodied. But as they entered March 1621, there were signs of spring in the air, and the pestilence began to dissipate. On the 7th, they began planting some garden seeds, although we don't know what exactly this means. Goodwin notes that pumpkins, beans, and squash were all indigenous to the surrounding hills, and that the potato wouldn't be grown in Plymouth until the 1700s. 
If I'm understanding his footnotes correctly, because Godwin is pretty fond of long footnotes, he seems to imply that it was probably carrots and turnips that the pilgrims were planting, but don't quote me on that. On Friday, March 16th, an event of note took place. Out of the woods, they saw another group of Native Americans standing on a nearby hill. The pilgrims were jumpy, expecting an attack, when they were completely caught off guard. One of them walked down the hill and entered Plymouth, walking along First Street, and then he spoke. Welcome! He wanted to enter the common house, but the pilgrims wouldn't allow this, in case the man was a spy, but he began to speak to the amazed colonists in broken but understandable English, and he told them about himself. His name was Somerset, and he was a Sackhem of Monhagan, an island about 12 miles off the main coast, and with this we can finally introduce the Native Americans of the region. We know less about this confederacy than we do with the Powhatans, but the tribe we are dealing with here is the Abenaki, one of the five tribes which made up the Wabanaki confederacy. The Wabanaki lived primarily in the area of Maine, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, but also controlled some of Quebec, going down the St. Lawrence River and New England. Like the Powhatans, they were also of the Algonquin-speaking tribes, the Sakem was something which translates as the Great Chief, and so Sormoset was quite an important figure. You can think of him as an equivalent of Wahonsonokok. Sormoset had been dealing with English fishermen for years, and so had picked up the language, and was quite familiar with English customs. The Warbanaki grew crops, but also hunted the local game. Smoking was common, they were polytheistic, and the Puritans found them highly superstitious. They had priests, powers, and the most important of their gods was Kietan, the creator god, although Abamako, an evil spirit, was also worshipped for his healing abilities. They were warlike, the Europeans seemed to have actually believed they would have killed themselves through infighting, even if they had never arrived in the Americas. In addition to the Abenaki in Maine, other neighbouring tribes and confederacies were the Nipmucks, the Mohawks, the Pequods, the Narragansetts, the Portuquets, the Tarantines, the Pocatohonets, and the Massachusetts, who gave their name to the region. It is hard to estimate numbers, partly because our sources were not ones for precision. Before the plague struck the region, we can only know the population figures in our wildest dreams, but for after the plague, 40,000 for the population size of New England wouldn't be an unreasonable figure to suggest. Of this first meeting, Goodwin writes... Quote, Sormoset was entirely naked, except for a leather girdle, which, with its fringe, was about a foot wide. He had straight black hair, short in front and long behind, with no beard. 
His only weapons were a bow and two arrows, of which one had no head. He was quite talkative, and of good presence. The wind arising, a horseman's cloak was put around him, and, upon his asking for beer, he was taken to dinner. And here we get a glimpse of the pilgrim larder at that time. In the lack of beer, Sormoset was given some strong water, followed by biscuit with butter and cheese, pudding and mallard. All of these he liked well, and had been accustomed to them on English ships. After dinner, he resumed his conversation. End quote. Sormoset provided the settlers with a great deal of much-needed information. For instance, why they hadn't seen any natives. The Algonquin name for Plymouth was Portuxet, and the place had been abandoned four years previously, due to a plague which had decimated the population. Estimates are that 95% of the population died. No one had since claimed the area, which is why it was empty. He told them of their neighbours. To the west was another Sakem, Massasoit, who had about 60 warriors at his disposal. Massasoit would visit a few days later, and a treaty was established. Bradford preserves the terms of it. Quote, 1. That neither he nor any of his should injure or do hurt to any of their people. 2. That if any of his did any hurt to any of theirs, he should send the offender, that they might punish him. 3. That if anything were taken away from any of theirs, he should cause it to be restored, and they should do the like to his. 4. If any did unjustly war against him, they would aid him, and if any did war against them, he should aid them. 5. He should send to his neighbours confederates to certify them of this, that they might not wrong them, but might be likewise comprised in the conditions of peace. 6. That when their men came to them, they should leave their bows and arrows behind them. End quote. This peace treaty would remain intact for over 50 years. It is also a mark of the quasi-independence of Plymouth Colony. This little colony made a treaty. But to return to Somerset, he told them about the tribe to the east, the Nauksets. This tribe was more troublesome than Massasoit would be. There was already some bad blood between them. It was getting late by this point, and the pilgrims were not comfortable enough to let him stay in Plymouth, so they compromised and he stayed on the Mayflower. Sormoset set off to visit the Wampanags, promising to bring them back some beaver fur, something the English had no knowledge of at this time. He set off on the Saturday and returned the next day with five tall Indians, hoping to entertain the English with singing and dancing, they brought with them four beaver skins, but it was a Sunday so the pilgrims would not trade. Therefore, the skins were left with the English until next time. There were attempts to arrange a meeting over the next few days, but it kept being disrupted. On Wednesday, the 21st of March, the last of the settlers left the Mayflower, and they were all now based on the mainland. On Thursday... Sormoset returned with a portuxet, 
man who would be invaluable to the pilgrims. Tish Quantum, although he is more commonly known as Squanto. He could speak English a lot better than Somerset was able to. And then we have a rather unfortunate moment. Bradford has been where almost all my information for the colony so far has been coming from. He has been writing an almost day-by-day account of what happened in the colony, and with March 25th, he concludes this. This is what we've been working with, but now everything has changed. What follows are a series of narratives, a formal history, which is useful but far less valuable than his detailed journal. From now on, where I want to find such copious amounts of information, all there is is a blank space in the historical record. It's frustrating for me that we are never, ever, ever getting back to this level of detail again in Bradford's account, and it means that in future episodes the speed of the narrative will increase, rather than this pace we've maintained for the past few episodes. I've been offering a trimmed-down version of the first few months of Plymouth, but if you wish to read a more in-depth version, you can find it in The Pilgrim Republic, an historical review of the colony of New Plymouth, by John Goodwin. This book has been invaluable in my research, but if you do read it, bear in mind that it was written in the 19th century. If you're used to the style, you'll be well aware of what to believe and what to dismiss, but if you only read modern histories, it will come as quite a shock. That's where we'll leave things for this week. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then why not consider supporting it? You can do that by going on iTunes and leaving a review to help spread the word about the show, or you could support it monetarily by signing up for membership. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. If you want to get connected, you can like the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast, follow me on Twitter at historyjamie, or send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.